All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome 8020 Baseball coaches, 8020 Baseball community. Got a good episode for you this week. We're going to hit on four tips for keeping team parents happy, the team's parents happy and supportive. We're also going to cover some of this in the interview that I am bringing you all today. So we'll get into those four tips and then we'll get into the interview. Before the interview, I'm going to discuss something about a coaching staff that struggled their first couple of years and now have won two consecutive championships. And I want to share, I think, something that most all of you, if not all of you, will find interesting and it's a tip that'll help you that'll help your team get better faster and will also make you a healthier person at the same time so i have a tip on this that i've used for years and i highly recommend considering so before we dive into this great interview with full disclosure my brother-in-law coach david pyrus david just finished his fifth season as a youth baseball coach. He's a very busy person. He's in the exact same position in terms of that busy life. He's not a baseball coach or player by trade. He knows a lot about the game, but he didn't play college baseball or professional baseball. He's got a very busy day job and he's very articulate. He's very well-spoken, one of the smartest people I know. And he's coached a total of five seasons now. I've worked hand in hand with him and sat down with him at spring training when we went to spring training together. And we really broke down a lot of this youth baseball coaching stuff. We were talking about the details here and things here and there. And it became very clear to me that his grasp and understanding in his role as a youth baseball coach is right on. And I really think all of you are going to get a lot out of the tips he shares, his journey, things he's found that work successfully. He's going to discuss some productivity tips how to juggle a busy schedule, a day job, family, all the other things in life, and also still be prepared and get the most out of practice and be prepared for games. He shares out a really good point about how to have a competitive and winning team, but ensuring players have fun, making sure that it's still fun while not sacrificing that competitive nature. He's got some great strategies for utilizing assistant coaches in a very productive way too. And in part one today, he'll also share with us some strategies that he's used successfully to give feedback to players after games and how he handles that. And we talk about a few other things along the way. I really think this interview is going to benefit all of you because this is a person that's been, one, a long-time listener of 80-20 baseball, somebody who uses the 80-20 baseball, but more than that, is in the same position as most all of you in terms of your situations with life and where you're coming from as a youth baseball coach. Now, I could bring on Dave Roberts. I mean, I don't know if I could get Dave Roberts to come on, but I mean, I could bring on somebody like that, somebody who's a professional coach or a college coach. But I think bringing somebody who's fresh off their fifth season of youth baseball, somebody who puts a lot of thought and effort into it to being really good for the kids, trying to get them to be better people and better players and get a winning team going while also keeping everybody on the same page and everybody happy. I just thought it made perfect sense to bring him on and share his experience with all of us so we can be better, faster. So we'll dive into part one of the interview in just a second. First, four tips for keeping teams' parents happy. Now, Coach Pyrus, David will dive into this a little bit and share some tips and things he's using that really help. I want to cover four right now because I did talk about this in the last episode saying I was going to discuss this and our interview got moved up. We got it done sooner than later. So I want to squeeze these in here at the beginning 
Number one, be upfront and transparent. Be very upfront about the desired environment and culture of the team and the culture of the team's parents. Be overly clear with this. I think it's super important to be very clear and very upfront, not standoffish and not come across as us versus them or me versus you as the parent. It should have a message of we're in this together. We're on the same team. We're working together to provide the best environment for our kids, a team effort amongst the adults. Be very clear with them before the season starts, before the first practice. You meet with the parents or you message the email, call the parents. You can't meet with them, at least do some kind of Zoom call. Ideally, you meet in person with the parents before the season. And I would recommend the kids not be there, or at least for this part. Or, you know, hey, maybe you feel like the kids can handle it. I would do a parents only, but you could probably make both work if needed. So I would say something to this effect. This may not be the best team for you and your family if you think your kid deserves special treatment. If you think your kid will play their preferred position all the time. This may not be the best team for you, and this is probably not the team for you if you think your kid will bat at the top of the lineup for every game. This is probably not the team for you, and I suggest you look elsewhere for another team, even though the season is starting soon, if you think it's okay to yell at the umpires. If you think yelling at the umpires is okay, this is not the right team for you. If you think coaching your kid's swing from the bleachers during a game is okay, this is not the right team for you. If you plan on or you possibly could undermine or try to undermine the coaches, the coaching staff with how you message things to your kid on the drive home or at home at the dinner table, this is not the team for you. So those are some examples of ways you set forth. You just very clear, like this is not the team. If you're going to yell at umpires, this is not the team for you. If you think your kid is going to play their preferred position all the time, this is not the team for you. Just tell them what the team is not going to be and be upfront. I think it's better to come across as proactive or to be proactive with your message and be very clear. Give specific examples like those I highlighted just a second ago. Second thing you can do, send parents a preseason, a preseason survey or questionnaire. It's an efficient way for them to share with you their thoughts, their concerns, etc. And even before you read it over them, filling it out and leave some open-ended questions there where it's not just short answers so they can feel better heard or understood by being able to dive a little deeper into something that might be of concern or something that they would like the coach to know. Could just be a health or safety thing but it could be something else. At a minimum, they're going to feel heard more or they're more likely to feel heard and understood. And then it'll also give you on the back end as you read it, more context and a better understanding of how to meet them in the middle, how to build quality rapport, address their concerns, et cetera. Number three, give parents a clear cut path to follow with regard to how they should address their concerns. So give them a clear cut path to follow with regard to how they should address their concerns. It's one thing to say, I don't want you to bring up playing time with me. Or it's one thing to say, hey, you need to communicate with me if there's a problem. It's one thing to say those things like, hey, parents, if there's a problem, come come see me. I think you need to be more specific. For example, I would say this. If you have a non-safety, non-injury related item to discuss, there's a 24-hour window after the game. Or if there's a concern that came up during the game that's not a safety injury or bullying item, there's a 24-hour grace period. Games typically end at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, on the weekends earlier, 24 hours before they can contact you. Tell them, hey, 24-hour grace period. Another thing that I think is a non-negotiable is contact hours. 
They can't text message or call you outside of the hours of say 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I like to use the 8 to 8. It's easy to remember. They can't call you or text message you outside of 8 to 8. It's up to you at your discretion if you want to allow emails. You can just say, hey, no contact, 8 to 8. You can say no emails, but emails typically don't have some chime or sound on the phone or a ring, but that's up to you. But I would set forth contact hours for at least phone calls and text messages, not before 8 a.m., not at eight, not after 8 p.m. And you could change it. You could say 7 to 7, or if you're an early riser and you think parents need to get to work and they need to say something to you earlier before they go to work, you could say 6 to 8. But I would set parameters so they can't just be doing it late at night. That's the thing that I found. If it does happen, if there are problems, it's usually those 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. text messages. I've seen those to coaches. They're not pretty sometimes. It's not acceptable. But I also think that I wouldn't even read any of that or listen to any of those voicemails. That's outside of contact hours. You could even say that if you think calling the coach or text messaging the coach at 10 at night to talk about something outside of an injury or a bullying item or a safety item, if you think it's okay to contact the coach at any given time, 24 hours a day, this is not the team for you. And tip number four, share with them, share with your parents an article or two or a book that backs up your philosophy on this, your expectations. So utilize or leverage experts in this area to back up why or what it is you you are setting forth. You could share in this podcast. So that was four slash five tips, being proactive with the team's parents to keep everybody on the same page, reduce conflict, keep them happier, and best supporting the kids because it is about the kids. You could even say that if this is more important to you than your kid, or if this is about you and not 100% about your kids, then this is not the team for you. If this isn't 100% about your kid and then it becomes about you, then this is not the team for you. And you need to look elsewhere for another team. I know it's late. I'll find another team for you. We'll make it work. So San Jose State University, I know it's college, but I'm going to tie this together with youth baseball. They've won championships the last two years. Now, I think two years ago, they won their conference championship. And then this year, they won their tournament conference tournament championship. So they've won a couple championships in the last two years. They've been very successful the last two years. Two years before that, the team was 11 and 42. They won 11 games and lost 42. 53 games is a good sample size. They won 11 out of 53 games. Fast forward, they've won two championships. So coaches, you're not always going to win. Even really good coaches have down years. Even the best coaches have losing years, have years they don't win as many games. But you can always be a winner if every single one of your kids says they want to come back and play for you the next year. All right, one more thing I wanted to talk about and share with you that I think is a, it's a really great two for one special tip for all of you. I understand not everybody exercises consistently or has a workout routine that's consistent. But if you are somebody who is exercising consistently, yellow workout schedule you stick to, let me give you one, what I think very useful tip on the days you have practice on your practice days, I would work out less or skip your workouts on practice days. It just depends on how much you do during your workout. If you got a crazy workout, maybe you work out less. If you have a mild workout, maybe you skip it. And here's why. Save the calorie expenditure. Save your workout for practice. You should be hitting a lot of fungos. You should have a lot of energy during practice. You should be getting a lot of steps in during practice. You could even demonstrate some of the drills. Don't get hurt with this, but some of you that are a little younger, you know, can handle that. Demonstrate some of the drills. Throw batting practice. 
throw toss, throw fly balls, hit fly balls. I'm telling you, just hitting a fungo or hitting, when I say fungos, most of you know, that's basically a practice hitting bat. You can use any type of bat to hit ground balls or fly balls. But if you're hitting them as quickly as you can, if you set your drill up, if you set your drills up correctly, you should literally be just bam, bam, bam. Okay, maybe not that fast, but it should be bam, bam, bam. Bam. You should be hitting ground balls and fly balls and running drills fast. If you set them up correctly, you can do this safely. If you go hit 300 ground balls or 200 ground balls and another 100 or 200 fly balls, that's a good workout. That's a heck of a good workout. So my tip here is on practice days, go out there with all the extra energy, skip those workouts that you might normally do or in the morning or skip the workout that day and find ways to be more active, get more quality reps in with your kids when you're hitting ground balls, fly balls, showing them how to do things quickly. I think this tip is very useful. And the thought came to me as I was sweating and drenched after my practices when I started to run efficient, high quality practices, high quality, fun, efficient, fast paced practices. When you run a fast paced, efficient, high quality practice, it could be a big workout if you're using the bat to hit ground balls, fly balls, etc. So it's a two for one, burn calories, get a ton of steps. And also you can take more steps, walk the field, the drills going on or the warm up routine, you're walking around the team as they're doing their throwing program. You're walking around the, the team as in maybe they're going through a drill. You're not staying in one place. It gives you a different perspective on the drill. It allows you to communicate and build rapport with different players around that are spread in different areas of that drill. You can give feedback more low key by getting closer, which takes more steps. So you put more steps in, but then you're giving a quieter feedback, not having to blast it out across the field. You can have a nice conversation with players, build some rapport. If you move around, take a lot of steps in, get that step count up, get a lot of swings in. You could burn a lot of calories by running a fast paced practice. So what I recommend is build that in and it will motivate you to go out there and really have a lot of energy knowing that, hey, I skipped my workout because I'm going to put that energy into running a fast paced, high quality practice, giving my players a lot of high quality reps. And if the coaches can be involved in this, it saves the players from having to manufacture those reps completely and they can focus on their skills and not producing ground balls and fly balls, but rather fielding those ground balls and fly balls, et cetera. All right. So now that we have some tips for working with parents and keeping parents and the team all on the same page, and now that we know, hey, even coaches that win championships, back-to-back championships, they may have had a lousy season the year before or a couple lousy seasons. It happens. It's all good. Keep working. Keep implementing this stuff. The faster you implement it, the better, the faster the learning curve, but just keep putting it in there, looking to get better. Stay present at practice, always looking for ways to improve. Keep showing up here every Tuesday, listening to the episodes that come out. And I shared a two-for-one tip on how to burn calories while actually skipping our workouts. Hey, just build it into practice. Now, this interview with David Pyrus. Coach Pyrus is one of the smartest people I know. The way his brain works is impressive. And I can vouch for him as a parent and as a coach. He's exactly what we want to be or how we want to approach coaching as 80-20 baseball coaches. He's coming off a very successful season. His team is an all-star team. He coached the regular season and then he coached the all-star team. So he has experience coaching both levels. And he just finished his fifth season of coaching. His all-star team won the district championship and had to win like five straight elimination games and won all five and came back and beat the team that beat them. And I think he's the exact person that we want to listen to here at the 8020 Baseball Podcast, Youth Baseball Coaches. So let's dive in to part one of the interview. I am here with Coach Pyrus, David Pyrus. David, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, Bo. Thanks for having me on here. 
I'm excited to have you on. And uh, full disclosure, David is my brother-in-law. He is a top-notch person, and I can vouch for him as a coach that's going out there with the right intentions. And so let's hear a little bit about your backstory, uh, David. Let's hear you know, your backstory and what, maybe also your journey as a youth baseball coach. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty exciting to be on here. You know, I've listened to this podcast for years and it's shaped much of my approach to coaching and some of the things I know we'll talk about today really aligns with the 80-20 principle. But my backstory, I, I would probably describe it as a pretty traditional route into coaching. As a kid, I loved baseball. I played baseball in a rural town in California's Central Valley. I started in T-ball. I played all the way up in the Babe Ruth League is what they called it through age 16. And I was decent at baseball. Not great, but I was better at tennis. So that's what I played in high school and then sort of fell away from the game after that. I would pay attention to some stats and see the standings, but it wasn't really until I had a kid, my son, that it got me back involved. And so I wanted to get more involved because we had this shared interest. He loves baseball. He was bringing me back in. And I also saw it as an opportunity to be able to volunteer in my community. So I started coaching on his t-ball team and then we're in Colorado. We're in District 2. It's a Little League, North Boulder Little League. And I got involved in the T-ball team and then the, the single A, the double A, and the triple A team, eventually managing all the teams. So like, for example, this year, I managed his 12, 10 to 12-year-old majors team. And then I managed the 10U all-star team. And I also served on the board of directors for North Boulder Little League. It, it's pretty easy to get roped into it because there's all these great people around. It's fun to work with the kids and to see them grow. And there's a lot of passion for baseball and youth sports. There wasn't any rhyme or reason or deliberation in my approach. It just sort of happenstance and falling into it. You come from a place that's very, very similar to most all the listeners. And when I was talking to you, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but you know, I was talking to you earlier and it, and it kind of dawned on me and we talked, we were going back and forth about things and you were asking some great questions and just trying to be the best coach you could be. And it dawned on me, I said, you are coming from the exact place of almost all the listeners. Now, sure, we do have high school coaches and college coaches and things like that listening, but this podcast, of course, is for youth baseball coaches. So it dawned on me and I said, well, here's one of the smartest people I know is you and you're just coming off a season. You're having success with the kids, making it fun. And I said, I got to have you come on here. So now your backstory, yes, you did play sports. You were really good at tennis. I've seen you shoot hoops and you got a nice shot. So I know you're into sports. You've always talked sports, but it's really great to have somebody as smart as you are. You came in, you come in very humble and ask great questions. I just want to give you a little plug on that part. And that's why <laughs> for the listeners, it's just like, Hey, this is like the perfect person to have on this podcast because the all the listeners can relate because we're all on the same mission of trying to do our best as youth baseball coaches. And it's not easy. So you're very busy. You're a busy person. I mean, you write books, you got a full-time job. I mean, just being a parent alone, I know what kind of parent you are. You're amazing. You're always going, you try to stay, you're healthy. You're just really staying busy with your time. You're productive. So a lot of the listeners, they're they're busy, right? They're, most of them are they're busy with their day jobs. They're busy with their families, just trying to be dads or, or moms outside of being a coach. What are a couple productivity tips for busy youth coaches that you would recommend that could help them that you found helpful that could better juggle their busy schedules, but still be prepared for practice and the games? 
Yeah, it's a great question because it's so easy to get sucked in. It's so easy for something that's three nights a week to turn into six nights a week. And it's so easy to start going and you know, hitting and fielding and taking your kid out and taking their friends out and turning this into a six to seven night a week sort of affair. And you got to remember, you know, you still got family and, you know, I can't forget about my daughter, can't forget about my wife because those things are just as important as baseball or as playing with my son. So, you know, being able to juggle my job too, because uh, it feels like baseball sometimes is like a second job is tough. So like in terms of, I, I always try to look for ways to make my life a little bit more efficient, whether it's, you know, shortcuts here or just efficiencies in other places. But, you know, one thing I eventually had to do for baseball was I would devote when it came to lineup time, I would say, I'm going to put 30 minutes into this. It's a fixed time. That's it. No more, no less. And everything else is going to be on the fly. And I know that's easier to say than to do, but you start walking through all these different scenarios. What if this happens here? And what if this happens there? And so I tried to put a fixed lineup together for the six innings that you know we could possibly play and do it in 30 minutes which meant that I wasn't going to be going to 45 minutes or an hour or more uh, when it comes to lineups. I also use spreadsheets for all positions. I document and try to manage. I like to document just to see. So I, when I talk to parents, when I talk to kids, when they ask me about roles, positions, and so on, I have everything in place to be able to go through our games. And, you know, North Boulder Little League, they have this nice spreadsheet to be able to do this across the season. It's a really efficient approach to be able to document the positions that people play. The other thing I do, though, is I listen to, you know, podcasts like yours where I get a lot of tips for practice. I like to run my practices in a certain way. So I pick up little tidbits here and there from practices and then to streamline warmups and then to have the kids lead the warmups. That's a really efficient way to be productive, in part because while they're doing the warmups and, you know, they know the routine, it gives me a chance to talk to my assistant coaches. It gives me a chance to talk to parents about other things that are going on in these kids' lives assistant coaches might see as issues or things that we need to address in practice. I think that's a way for me to be more productive, both in how I go about the practices and the games, but also how I go about managing baseball as well as a full-time job and a family. I love that idea of automating or giving the kids the autonomy, the players, the autonomy to take care of the warm-up routine and some things that are more structured and easily digestible and then implemented or run by them. Even 8U and 7U kids can run their own warm-up if implemented effectively over the first couple of weeks of the season. But giving you the opportunity then to get with your assistant coaches because coaches might be coming from their jobs or coming in late or they're coming right at the time practice starts and you're working during the day, you don't have time to have coaching meetings. It's youth baseball. And that's a big difference between high school and college and pro coaches where they can have meetings and things like that in the morning. Not so much high school, but definitely the college and pro level. And so I think that's just a little thing, but can be hugely advantageous throughout the year. So you're all on the same page without really using up any extra time. I like the spreadsheet idea. You said they provide a spreadsheet. Is it an Excel spreadsheet? Is that a Google Sheets? What kind of spreadsheet are you using? It's just an Excel spreadsheet. You just download it from the website. You plug plug in players' names, and then it automates everything. It just tallies up where they are in the batting order, how many times they've played shortstop, and so on. It's a really good way to document things. 
I like how it gets the goal of making sure that it balances out the playing time and things like that, but it really takes the subjectivity out, right? And so if you have a discussion with parents, you can just say, hey, here are the numbers. And I think sometimes parents can think their kids are playing less than maybe they are or not playing the position as much. The emotions can kind of skew us on, on how we're seeing things. Now, back to this fixed time, you said like, say, 30 minutes. Is that, uh-huh. so you're saying like prep time, you, you set like a 30 minute prep time window and then that's it or? That's it. Yep. No more, no less. I mean, sometimes less, sometimes it goes a little bit more, but that's aspirationally what I aim for because you start thinking you overthink things. And that's probably one of the bigger struggles that I had as a youth coach is like you overthink and you overplan. And this is one of the ways to cut against the grain on that. Oh, but it's Parkinson's law. You know, the job will take the amount of time that you allow it to take and <laughs> yeah. you schedule it for, right? And so, you know, what's interesting yesterday, David, I was out in the backyard. I put some fertilizer on the grass this time of summer, put some fertilizer when it gets a little hotter on the lawn and keep it green. Nevertheless, I was out there and I go, you know what? A couple of weeks ago, I was out here doing some yard work and it ended up being like an hour and a half. And I said, no, nah, I don't have an hour and a half to be out here doing this yard work right now. And it wasn't even that vital. The yard looks fine. And I said, okay, I'm going to go out here and I need to spray these dead spots of grass, these patches of grass. I need to hit these rose bushes that I put a little feed on. But I said, I'm going to go 30 minutes. It's interesting you brought this up because we didn't discuss this before. And I said, I'm going 30 minutes. I set a timer. In fact, it was 7.30 on the dot. I said, I'm going until 8 p.m. I'm going to go inside and say goodnight to my daughter. My wife was reading, so I wasn't in charge of that, but I still wanted to come in. And you know what it made me do? It really made me stay on it. Like I I wouldn't get caught up. I got to go to the next one. You know, it's a little thing that I think could be really helpful in our lives, just setting the timer. And I'm a big fan of setting transitional timers during practice. I time every transition during practice, but nevertheless, we don't want to get into my side of it. I want to hear more from you. And next question, what has been one of your biggest struggles as a youth coach? Oh, I mean, I think I just alluded to it, I guess, is is the over planning. And when you're putting that lineup together, your batting order together, it's this idea that you could will a scenario into existence. It's not like, you know, these kids are Kyle Tucker, who's going to deliver in a clutch situation, or Blake Snell is going to deliver some sort of shutdown performance on the mound. These are 10-year-olds is basically who I'm working with. These kids are, you know, they're going to school. They've got siblings. It could be a bad grade or a bee sting or a, you know, I don't know, a thunderstorm that kept them up at night. It's reminding yourself that they're not these programmable robots who are going to deliver what you want and when you want it. And so this idea that sometimes you just have to let everything fly and let everything go the way that it's going to go, because, you know, baseball can be life and life can be baseball where these kids are, they're not going to deliver exactly what you want and when you want it. And I think the over planning, it's taken me a a couple of years to really realize sometimes you just got to let things fly and let them go the the way that they're going to go. So that was one of my struggles as a youth coach. It's not, you know, parents, it's not kids' attitudes. It's sometimes the things that I impose on myself as I'm preparing for a season or in the midst of a season. I think you hit on something that's so important for us to keep in mind as youth coaches, youth parents, and just parents in general. I think there's just too much, in my opinion, over coaching, too much coaching going on during practices, always interjecting or giving comments and feedback on every single mistake a kid makes. And then there's the overparenting where parents are coaching from the stands instead of just letting their kids play. You're talking about over planning as a coach, just trying to literally script out an entire two-hour practice to the T every step, every movement. And it's like, that's not going to work, nor do you have the time to do that and get everything else done and be great at everything else in your life. So what a great tip. 
plan and, and maybe bullet out things and, and have a template and, and have, like you said, set a timer 30 minutes and then what you can get in there and then let it fly. I like how you said that, let it fly. And the kids are not programmable at the end of the day. So it's an uphill battle that will never win. So that's great. Now, how do you balance being competitive as a coach uh, and winning and I'll, and I'll say this, your all-star team just won the district championship. You've done your share of winning, but I know the kids are having a blast playing for you. So how do you balance the competitive and, and winning games, but ensuring players have fun? Yeah, I mean, w- winning solves a lot of things, but it doesn't solve everything. You know, we made it to the state championship and we ended up losing to a really great Dry Creek Little League team, which is based in the you know, South Denver. But again, it's not just about winning because, it, you know, these kids, there's more to it for them. And when I think about balancing being competitive and winning and making sure that these kids actually, you know, are having fun, the number one thing I like to, to talk to them about is how they can contribute to the team in many different ways. So a lot of times I'll hear kids, you know, make comments or snicker about who's at the bottom of the lineup and whether they moved up a little bit. And what I try to remember or remind them is, you know, if you're a 9, 10, 11, 12 hitter, I want to remind them just how important their roles are for the team, of how you could keep a rally going and how you could help advance. And we, it happened many times where 9, 10, 11, 12 hitters, you know, are hitting doubles and stealing bases and scoring runs and helping contribute to wins. I also let my outfielders know just how important they are when they make that catch or prevent a ball from going past them that saves an extra base or even saves a run. And even when they are, when kids are on the bench and, you know, the thing that I, I see bench time, and I don't even call it bench time. I call it for little league rules. I call it your designated hitter at that inning. You're the DH role. And, you know, the DH role is so much bigger in MLB. And, you know, they sort of take a little bit of pride in it, knowing that their specific role for that inning when they're on the bench is to go hit. But I see that time as this is an opportunity for more relationship building. When they're on the bench, you get a chance to you know sit down and talk to them a little bit, whether it's me or the assistant coaches, and you get to learn a little bit more about the kids and what's going on in their lives. And when they realize that they have a coach who cares about them, all that stuff about competition and winning, that sort of, sort of starts to take a backseat when they realize you know relationships that are developing. And not just with their coaches, but also some of the other kids that are on the DH role too. That's a great piece of advice for everybody, I think, going on all coaches. And it kind of makes me think about, you know, the, the, the competitive and winning, competitiveness and winning will kind of take a back seat. And it kind of makes me think that that's probably already embedded in most of the kids, right? Like most kids are want to win. They're going to most likely want to win. I feel like most of them do. Not all of them are the same, of course, they're on different levels on that spectrum. But most of the kids at youth level, they want to go out and they want, they'd rather win than lose. And so you already kind of have that built in, but they don't always have in the fun built in, like inherently the fun part of it doesn't come naturally always to them because of maybe um, circumstances or messages they're getting fed or, or things like that, mm-hmm. or just the pressure they put on themselves. So you're what you kind of made me think, what a great tip. It's like, don't worry about the winning and competition that'll take care of itself. And, and you'd rather take a backseat, but it'll always kind of be there for the most part. They're playing a game. These are kids. They want to win and have fun. There's a scoreboard. Okay, we get it. But those two tips you you shared there about selling the kids on the importance of each role, that is gold. And if you weren't listening closely, listeners, go back about four minutes and listen to that again. David gave specific examples about how he sells it to kids on the importance of each role, even though they might not be in the game or maybe they're playing right field. That right there is something that will serve every coach from 
from the time you start to the end of your career selling the importance, getting buy-in. We always talk about buy-in and I like how you gave two really great examples for kids that might really not want to buy in. They're, they're not in the game. They're sitting in the dugout or they're in right field. Um, and these kids, they really know what the high status positions are, fielding positions and the lower status positions. So it's obvious to them. But it's also when somebody who's in a lower status position, say it's your right fielder, say that that right fielder makes a big play, it is complimenting them very loudly just to know how big of a deal it was that they did what they did. I had in a, one of our all-star games, a kid who was playing in left field who missed the ball in one of the earlier innings, went past him, gave up a run. And then in the last inning, we had one out and he catches this diving pop fly to left field. I mean, it, it saved the game basically. And, and that was what I used to really reiterate the point that just how important those other positions are. It's not just about shortstop or pitcher or catcher. Great message. Now, Dave, sure. I want to hit on the next question on how to utilize assistant coaches. You gave a great example of how you meet with assistant coaches during the warmups and, and, and the early stage part of practice. And I think, wow, that's great. That kind of helps you allocate and carve out some time with the assistant coaches. What's something you found that helped you utilize assistant coaches to get the most out of sure. you know, the whole coaching staff? Yeah. First, it's picking the right ones. And it's not just your friends or people that you enjoy being around. Of course, that's important. But it's also people that you could trust who are willing to invest their time and their energy in kids and people who are good at kids. It's not just about them being excellent baseball players either. Mm -hmm. I have some assistant coach who's out there barking and yelling at kids all the time. That's not what I want on my team. But the way I probably utilize them the most is through the different drills. With practices, I try to make it so that there's no time that kids are just sitting around. That's time that they don't have to deviate from the larger plan. So we're always broken up into you know smaller groups and the assistant coach are leading different drills. And some of them have different skill sets. Some of them might be just better with catchers. Some are better with pitchers. Some can help more with bunting. Some would just have great arms and they could throw 500, 1,000 pitches in batting practice. And some of them just have great people skills. They could just relate to kids really well. So I use them in a number of different ways. But the number one way is to really separate out the kids into different groups and to have them leading different drills with them to make sure that they're all, all the kids are staying active staying focused on the things that we want to do. That 20% that drives 80% of the output. How's that for a plug for 80-20 baseball? Love it. <laughs> so the assistant coach is leading different drills. It makes them feel valued too, right? It makes them feel like a valuable part, like almost an equal part, because if they're running one drill and you're running another drill, or if they're each running different parts of a drill, you know, helping equally in a way at that time. And I think giving the assistant coaches some autonomy to go do that. But now you hit on it a little there at the end, David. It's, let's say you have two assistant coaches and you break your team into three groups to maximize the quality reps. Do you give them key points? You talk about the 20% to drive the 80. Do you share something so everybody's on the same page? And I'll just say this. I have seen in the past something that can cause confusion with players and slow the growth and then get the team and players on different pages is when an assistant coach goes over and coaches it a certain way, but when they come back together, that's not maybe the way that it's being coached up. And, and I'm talking about some of the big needle movers, not little details that aren't really mm -hmm. always covered by all the coaches, but how would you recommend a coach, if you're the manager, just being on the same page with maybe that key part of that drill that they're coaching up? Yeah. And I think batting's probably the best example of this. A lot of times these kids end up so confused. They might have like a batting coach and then they had their coach in, you know, a majors division. And then you have a coach in an all-star and then you have an assistant coach 
and you're getting four different messages from four different people. So one of the things that I try to do and to tell the assistant coaches, like if I know a kid's working with a batting coach, that's extra time they're putting in. Let's not go and critique every single thing when it comes to their batting. Like I try to give more regular feedback when it comes to batting, but when it, when they do have a batting coach, I just try to really limit it to, you know, focusing on their head, focusing on their, their footwork and not to overcoach them with other aspects of their batting. Uh, and I try to like when the assistant coaches know that if this kid has a batting coach, you know, we're going to defer to that batting coach, at least, you know, for little league sports. Other than that, though, outside of batting, pitching, we don't, I don't overdo it with pitching and giving, you know, constant feedback to kids. And, and I don't have my assistant coaches overdo it or overcoach either. I mean, we try to get a, a similar message in place and, you know, that's it. I really try not to overthink this. And this might be the, the wrong message uh, that's coming across, but I usually try to allow the kids to trust their instincts unless they're getting into a rut that they can improve and they can figure out ways to improve. And that might deviate from what a lot of other little league coaches do. That's been really my approach to them is give occasional feedback to kids and have uh, assistant coaches give occasional feedback, but not to overdo it. That mindset as a coach should be taken and implemented. And that right there is so massive. It's less is more. These kids need to play the game fast. They want to play without looking over their shoulder. They don't want to have to go through checklists actually coaching less and let the game itself, let the quality reps during the drill coach up the player and teach the player along with the player learning on their own. I think the, the best learning experience I had with that, where I would do this a lot with other kids, but then when it came to my kid, I would constantly overcoach my son. As we were getting into the All-Stars, the first you know four games into it, he just wasn't hitting that well. And then finally, in one of the games, I said, you know what, you just go out. I'm going to shut my mouth. You just go out and hit how you want to hit. And third pitch in, he just knocks a ball over the left fielder's head and gets a double. And that's finally when I realized I really need to stop especially over coaching my son, much less other kids. The thing about the example you gave about the hitting coaches and, and your assistant coach. Okay. So we were talking about assistant coaches and delegating and kind of working with the assistant coaches and maybe branching off and running different parts of the drill. Love it because that gives more quality reps. It's all about getting more authentic quality reps, right? During practice. And if you can break off your team into groups and send the coaches with them, and it doesn't mean they always have to have a coach with them, but if you can do that, that works great. Sometimes it's good to have a station by themselves, but kids do need some, not necessarily coaching, but sometimes they just need some redirection back to the focus on the task. Now, you talked about hitting and hitting coaches. Interestingly enough, my experience, hitting coaches, like I say, if a kid has their own hitting coach and, and they go to hitting lessons, those coaches are almost always working on the swing. Most of the time, they're working on the swing technique. They're not hitting up the hitting approach or pitch selection. All the years that I've coached the youth, when the kids would come in, almost all of them would have some kind of previous coaching that they'd received on hitting or whatever. And so you're always like, how do you balance that, right? Well, I found that starting with the hitting approach or working on the hitting approach, the selection, pitch selection is something that's great because the hitting coaches aren't really covering that, that much in my experience. So they work on the swing. Okay, you go work on your swing with him or, or her. And then when you're here, we're just going to really dial in your less than two strike hitting approach or your two strike hitting approach and pitch selections and things like that. And also when you send off the coaches, I know you're doing this because we talked about this a while back. When you send off coaches, it's not always just say, hey, go coach the kids on this key point. Or if you have like a key point, you work together with the assistant coaches. Like, hey, what's something you think we need to work with on this? Because it could be their idea. It could be yeah. their like, hey, what's the main thing that we want to really dial in on this drill? What's the main key? And then let everything else kind of play out. Let it fly, like you said earlier. 
So what kind of feedback do you, you provide your players after the game? So this could be your post-game talk or even the next practice. What, what kind of feedback do you provide players after games? Sure, yeah. I mean, after games, I try not to talk too much. If we had a great game, we won, they want to go out and celebrate. They're out there messing around and running across the field and chasing each other. That's what they want to go do. They want to go have their ice cream or their Gatorade, whatever it is. After a rough game, they're frustrated. They want to move on and they want to go out and play with each other. So I try to keep it pretty quick. One to two minutes at most. If I feel like they're open to it, I try to say, hey, what are two positive things? What are three things that we did really well that game? And then what is one thing that we want to do better? What's our aspirational goals going forward for the next game? And even after a tough game, after a really tough loss, I, I try to remind them of growth, where we've gotten better, where we've improved, our accomplishment, and also that they're more than just baseball players. There's a lot more to life than just baseball, whether it's our families or our school or our other interests that we have. And then I'll try to follow up instead of directly after the game, you know, the next day, the next practice after they've had time to process it. And a lot of times if they took a hard hit or they had a bad, you know, caught looking on a strikeout, then we'll try to talk about it that time when they're a little bit more receptive and they've had time, you know, for their emotions to get in check and to calm down and talk to their parents too, and so on. So I, I don't think there's like a script that I generally follow, but that's sort of my approach to feedback that less is usually more after a game. Great message right there. And kind of a, a blueprint that you go by with your feedback or your post-game feedback. Are you just off the cuff? I know you, knowing you, you could probably just remember it perfectly. But for somebody like me that probably doesn't have the just a, that really acute memory that you have, would you recommend like writing it down or as it goes on? Or do you have like bullet points on, on a on a clipboard or do you just kind of go off the cuff with, Hey, these are two things we did great. These are maybe something we need to work on. And it's, also timing it. How do you just have, feel it out? Say, cause I know coaches that I'll ask after how, how long do you think you talked for? And they'll go, Oh, that was, you know, five minutes. And I'm like, well, that was 13 minutes. Do you time it or you just kind of go and just kind of feel it out. I, I wish I timed it. My guess is I probably talk a little bit longer than I say I do. I always want to try to give my assistant coaches a chance to be able to say something too. But even then, they tend to be pretty brief to either reinforce a message or to identify something that I hadn't mentioned. But it's either going to be something related to fielding, something related to batting. And I try to highlight one strength from each one of those. But usually, I mean, it's off the cuff. Usually it's something that happens towards the end of the game as opposed to the beginning of the game. Uh, and usually it's going to be in contrast to a prior game. So if we had a rough game where we weren't hitting, we might have scored because we were getting walked. If we were hitting this game, even if we're getting out, that's something that I want to highlight. And especially if there's a kid who had a rough patch, who did get a big hit, I'm going to call that person out and congratulate them, celebrate them in front of their teammates, just so that they know that these things are being noticed. So I think you could stick to your, you could do the off the cuff and could stick to the, the bullet points in your mind. I, I played for a Hall of Fame a high school coach. He went to the like National High School Baseball Hall of Fame, one of the winningest coaches in California history, but also somebody who goes around and, and does clinics, uh, Coach Mike Curran. And Coach Curran would, even though he'd coached, by the time I was coaching with him, he had coached for like 30 or 35 years as a varsity head coach and had won a national championship, high school national championship. But even he would, he had a little uh, pad. And if something popped up during the game, I'd see him write down on the pad. I always like to have a clipboard out there. Sometimes I'll jot a note down. I do know that if I have 
bullet points or some, or even like a list of say two items or three items, then I tend to stick to that better and not get long winded. So that's another way of looking at it. I know you're very disciplined, but as all the listeners coming from different places, I, I coached with a coach, great guy, but he loved to talk and he needed bullet points because he was ad-libbing it. 22 minutes later, the kids were falling asleep and nothing had been accomplished from that post-game feedback and talk. So, Well, yeah, um, I mean, if the kids are starting to look elsewhere, when their eyes start to wander, that's usually a pretty good sign that you're talking too long. Yeah. Well, you have good awareness too. So I think that's a skill too, that you kind of build up as a coach, awareness of reading the room, reading the kids, reading the group, reading the field. All right, we're going to wrap up part one of the interview with Coach Pyrus right there. We'll come back next week and we'll take in part two. Next week, we'll talk about how to handle discipline behavior issues that come up, how to ensure kids of all skill levels are included and can contribute and feel like they're contributing. David's going to answer the question, what is something he'd recommend youth baseball coaches avoid doing? He's going to share out his strategies on how he manages pitching rotations for youth pitchers. And he's got some interesting insight on how he does this successfully. And we'll cover more key items in part two next week. So make sure you're here. In the meantime, head over to 8020baseball.com. Get the free drill design guide. Support the podcast. Leave a review, a rating. That would be awesome. And most of all, share the podcast with your friends or family or other coaches that you know. Email your questions, any coaching concerns you might have. Email me your success stories from utilizing or using the 80-20 baseball strategies, tactics, approach. And until next week, take care of yourselves, take care of your health, take care of your families, your close friends. I know you are. I know you are. Keep that up. Take care of those foundations first. And as we continue to solidify and keep our foundations solid, let's take this information out there and create a solid baseball environment, a solid practice environment, a solid game environment. Build up their skills, build up our teams, build up the team culture, make it a win-win-win. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.